Testament to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in the first verse. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, which, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidikal. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Cusa, Herod Stuart and Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. And seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And 
These have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. And his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bounds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountains, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter him, and he permitted them. And the demons went out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and were drowned. And those who fed them saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. They went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from him, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had departed begged him, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house, and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way, proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And so on thus far, the reading of God's inerrant and inspired word. This morning, having Jesus having already told us about the very different outcomes from hearing the word of God, this picture of Jesus going out as a farmer, spreading the word of God wherever he goes, and then the responses of the different categories of, of ground that some bring forth no crop whatsoever, some spring up and fall away, and others bring forth this wonderful crop of good fruit. But now he gives us this warning. He says, take heed how you hear. It is possible to respond and to hear well God's word. And this will have positive consequences out of all proportion to what you do. It is, it is far greater than that. It spirals up and up and up and greater and greater good comes from these things. And more and more is given. But on the other hand, it's possible to hear in the other way. It's possible to hear with a bad heart. It's possible to hear with an unbelieving heart. And there are negative consequences there, also out of all proportion for what may appear to you 
to be just a momentary decision, a momentary delay, a momentary restriction on this word of God. It is possible to hear and respond poorly with these consequences that are not trivial. And this is really critical information for us. By the way, I think it's a key to understanding the whole Gospel of Luke. So much of it is is reflected. So much of it is explained by this parable and by what the warning that we're hearing today. And this information that we're given, this warning that Jesus says and all that surrounds it, take heed how you hear, it determines so many things. It determines, among other things, how we structure things as this church. If the word of God and your response to it were inconsequential, if it were of no consequence, then things would be very different here. Rather than everything structured to prepare you and to, for you to hear it and to hear it well, we would have other things. And, and just as a very minor example, some people wonder why we don't have Sunday school. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Sunday school. It's a good thing. And if, if we were convinced that the fathers were not doing their jobs and raising their children and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we probably could be convinced to have it. But as it is, the number one reason why we don't at this point is because your attention span is a precious commodity. And if it's a, if it's a choice between you giving some of your attention span to hearing a Sunday school presentation and then having so much left over for the sermon, then... As far as we're concerned, maybe we'll just save it all for the sermon because it is of utterly crucial importance how you hear this word of God. You will be held accountable. We will be held accountable and you will be held accountable for it all. Even in, by the way, it's important even in terms of equipment. You see this new microphone. Well, more money and mainly more precious time of Simon and Alan Sam have been given over to the installation, selection and installation of this new microphone. We don't even have our own building, do we? And I would seriously doubt whether there is a better public speaking microphone to be found in this city than the one that we have here. Why is that? It's indicative of our priorities. It reflects a basic conviction. It matters, it matters that you hear this word of God. You see. But more than that, it matters how you hear the word of God. You should never think that our response to this word is without its consequences. There is no thing. Sometimes I understand that some sermons are better than others, true. And I'm sure that there are some that, some that in God's providence are more memorable and, and so forth in you than, than others. But there's no such thing as a routine sermon that has no lasting importance. And even now, you're making decisions in your mind and your heart what to do with the word of God. And I want you to know that they're important. This word of God is something that is so closely and so intimately connected, related to the, the second person of the triune God, the, the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he calls himself the word. We know that from John 1. He calls himself the word. What are you doing with him? What are you doing with this word that has been conveyed? Your decisions matter. It's momentous. It's mo- by far the most important decision that you ever make in this lifetime is what to do with this word as it reaches you. What are you going to do with it? It matters to you because it certainly matters to God. To him, the word of God is something very precious. He doesn't give it to everyone. He doesn't, he doesn't continually give it before swine who don't receive it. The Lord takes note of how you respond to it, whether you treasure it, whether you put it to use, or whether you trample it underfoot. This thing that is so precious to him, do you you think that he will not hold you accountable for it? Do you think that there are not going to be real consequences for how you deal with his word? He takes it personally, and so should you. The word for us today is take heed how you hear. It's the title of our sermon. And in it, I give you three principles about hearing the word of God. The first, those who hear the word should put it to good use. The second, your response identifies your spiritual family. And third, your response becomes a spiral. So these three points. We begin with those who hear the word should put it to good use. 
says in verse 16, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. You see, this is another mini parable, a one-verse parable, or at least an illustra- just an illustration, perhaps. And the premise is very simple. Those who have a good and useful thing like light are going to treasure it and are going to put it to good use, Right? If you're going to go to the trouble and expense, and back then they thought more about that expense, and maybe we would today, but still there's expense, of lighting a lamp, you're not then going to cover it up or hide it under a bed. You're going to put it in some place high, and you're going to make use of it for yourself and for others who are around. It might be of good to them. That's, of course, what should happen with the Word of God. Those who hear it should not waste it, or diminish it, but they should hold it aloft for their own good and for the good of their neighbor. Right? That's the basic idea of this. And that idea is further developed in verse 17, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. And what that means is your response to the word of God is very telling. It tells you something. It tells God something. It tells other people around you. Your identity as a believer, something that Jesus in another place calls a sheep, Remember that that situation? He divides his sheep and his goats. The sheep he brings into heaven and the goats he sends off into hell. Sheep and goats. And your response to the word of God, your identity as a believing sheep or an unbelieving goat, cannot ultimately be concealed. You know, strangely enough, some people sometimes want to conceal that identity. Some unbelievers want to pass themselves off as believers. We know that Satan himself goes around as an angel of light doing that. Some believers, strangely and sadly, want to pass themselves off as unbelievers, as goats. Peter did that, you remember. Sadly and strangely. But you need to know it doesn't work forever. That even during this life, the reality or the lack thereof of the word working in our lives is going to show, it's going to tell. And of course, all, in, when Judgment Day comes, and all those things are going to be revealed, everything's going to come to light, including, by the way, all the details and circumstances of every time that you've ever been exposed to the Word of God. Those who, despite all the warnings of the Word of God, despite all the times that they'd heard the gospel, are there before God, and they will be judged, all will be judged according to their sins, absolutely. But as factors that will increase the severity of their punishment in eternity and how surely that will include the opportunities that they heard the word of God. So take heed. Take heed. Well, secondly, the second principle is that your response identifies your spiritual family. Again, if the first one is that those who hear the word should put it to good use, the second is that your response identifies your spiritual family. And this is just carrying on, really, from the first. All this is so related. It all flows one from another. It says in verse 19, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, you have to see that Jesus has some point to make here, okay? Because no one ever loved his mother and brothers like Jesus of Nazareth. And he is for a moment seeming to speak in a way that kind of diminishes his role and his special relationship with him. He must have a point to make. He's not doing it idly. And the question is, what is that point that he's trying to make? Well, I think it's this. It's a continuation of this general theme of the larger passage that People's response to the word of God reveals what kind of soil they are, whether they're the wayside soil or they're the rocky soil or the thorny or the good. It's going to tell. It's going to show. It tells you who you are spiritually and therefore whether or not you're truly related to Christ. That's what else matters, by the way. That's the only thing that matters in this life. Are you related to Christ or are you not? And your response to the word of God shows you that. Jesus is aware of who his family is in terms of, of human relationship. And the people there were not, were not deceived. They understood that his, his human family had come. And, and look, he, he received what ordinary people might have received from their mother and their, his, her genes. And the family resemblance was there. 
And likewise with his half-brothers. There would have been some kind of family resemblance. They got all together. Jesus would not have looked out of place among them. There was a family resemblance. And the point is that they, you, the family, the people that are together, the people that are your mother and brothers and sisters and fathers, you're going to look similar. You're going to have this family resemblance. And spiritually, the family resemblance that Jesus has identified is those who hear and obey the word of God. As you know, that's what Jesus himself does. Jesus so consistently said that I have come to do your will, O Father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Consistently and all throughout, his life was defined by an utter reception of the word of God, of whom he was the embodiment, the incarnation of the word of God. And he never restricted it. He never refused it. He never rebelled against it. In every way, he treasured this word and he obeyed it and it was demonstrated in his life with no exception. And he says that those are his family eternally. Those are his spiritual family. And he was speaking, when he was speaking, by the way, unfortunately with his brothers at this point and maybe even possibly with his mother, they weren't in that category. Praise God, we think that some of them later did become in that category. But at this point, they may not have resembled him spiritually. They may not have been the ones who were receiving the word of God and demonstrating that in their obedience. What Jesus says is, here are some, here in front of me, those who are listening to this word, those who receive it, those who obey it, they are related to me. We have one common father, And we receive his word as obedient children. Anyone who claims to be his brother has got to do likewise. And this is very useful information for us. This principle that our relationship to Christ is demonstrated by this. It tells us how we can identify our brothers and sisters. We can take notice of those who receive the word and actually bad. Now look, we cannot with absolute determination... Any of us look at someone and say, absolutely, this one is saved and this one is not. That kind of knowledge is not given. But the evidence is. And Jesus tells us about the evidence. And Jesus invites us to examine that evidence that we might know something about ourselves and the people around us. And what we notice about those who are receiving the word and obeying it, they are behaving like we do ourselves. We recognize something of ourselves in them. And we rightly conclude that they're brethren in Christ. And to some sense, no one even needs to be instructed in this. Christians just do that naturally, don't we? We go, to, we, we go around and we meet people and maybe they make some indication that are, they're a Christian. And we then somehow or another make sure that some element of the word of God is presented to them to see what they do with it. And how we rejoice when it's very clear that they embrace it the same way we do. And we say, you're my brother. And we're not wrong. We're right in doing that. But if we see people not even granting that the word has authority over them, or maybe they think it does in theory, but they flatly reject some plain command or other of Scripture, then we make the obvious and right conclusion. They're not our mother or fathers or brothers or sisters. They have no relationship to Christ because they do not display this most basic characteristic of those who are related to him spiritually. They have not received this word with joy. They've not embraced it. They've not treasured it. It makes no difference in their lives. They're not our brothers or sisters. It's important for us to know that. And thirdly, here's another, this third principle. Your response to the word will become a spiral. See, what we're saying in this is, this basic idea that those who receive this good thing should put it to good use And in fact, you're doing so, you're putting it to good use, you're treasuring it as it ought to be treasured by God himself, indicates whether you're related to him or not. And then also, that that is what what is happening at any moment is not merely a snapshot, it is not something that just tells you one way or another, nor is your response merely additive, whereas if you reject it, you're only here, and then you might go here and might go here, up and down like that, or if you're here, it it just does that. It's not like that, It's it's the beginning of a spiral. It it works either this way or it works this way, and it keeps on going. Verse 18, therefore, take heed how you hear. 
For whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. And this is the illustration of the parable of the sower. It tells you more than what happens at that very moment. At the moment, what you have is more or less a snapshot of what has happened in those four categories of seed. Some of them grow, some of them don't. But what he's saying is that these things are also spirals, that they continue on, that your response to the word of God, that God himself, as it were, responds to it. We know that he determines all things from eternity past, We're talking about as they play out in our lives, that as you receive this word and you act upon it and you obey it, he gives you more and more. But if you reject it, if you treat it as a common thing or a thing to be despised, then he takes it away from you. Now, I want you to understand that this, what he's just said here, is very intimately connected, as I mentioned, to the parable of the sower. And the best way I can do that, I think, is just read to you Matthew 13, which also contains the parable of the sower, and it has a larger context of all this. So Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? All right, that's one of the questions. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Hmm. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will not hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he goes on, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. It's an illustration of that whole deal. He's saying, why am I using parables? Because I, in my justice, do not want these unbelieving people in front of me to understand the word of God. Do you understand it's a terrible judgment. He says they, he, these people, they are, they are fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. The reason why is because they have, they're, they're hard of hearing. They've made themselves hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Do you see? They have closed their eyes to him. Jesus is there, the Son of God, their Messiah is before them, and they're closing their eyes. They don't want to see. They don't want to hear. They don't want to recognize. They turn away from him. And Jesus says, therefore, I turn away from them this means of their salvation. I won't speak to them openly like I speak to you. I'll just speak to them in parables. And they won't understand these things because they've already decided they don't want to hear it. And therefore, I will not continue to give them these good things, these precious things, these things that prophets in the past and angels even have desired to look into. They have desired to hear the things that you're hearing right now. And it wasn't, that privilege wasn't given to them. How dare you then treat this as a common thing? How dare you close your eyes or or turn away your ear from hearing these things? It's the most precious thing to be imagined. And the principle is that your response is going to become a spiral. They probably didn't think to themselves that this moment when they were before the Lord Jesus Christ and he was speaking to them, they probably didn't think to themselves. If, If they put off believing that day, if they say, I'm, I'm not going to listen this day, I'm not going to respond to the word, I'm not going to follow Jesus as I ought to do, they probably didn't think to themselves that this is the last time I'm going to hear it in its clarity. They probably didn't think to themselves that next time Jesus is going to judge me by speaking only in a way that I cannot understand. But that was the, the spiral, you see. They had set themselves on this downward spiral. And it's only going to get worse from there. As they fail to understand, they hear less and less of these things and their spiritual interest goes away and their darkness increases and they, they close, even if they want to open their eyes at some point, there's nothing for them to see. It's a terrible, terrible reality. And Jesus is good to warn us about these things. 
Well, I should say, by the way, of course, that the good ground is also an upward spiral, that those who hear the word and those who believe it and those who find a good, the good ground of their heart to receive these as they ought, it doesn't just bear a crop of one, right? It is a crop of some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Why? Because as people receive this and they believe it, Jesus gives them more. And more and more and more. These disciples that started out as, as, as they were there and they, the larger group of disciples. And over time, they listened to what they had. Not perfectly. We understand that the disciples were not perfect listeners. None of us are. But their intent was good. They didn't knowingly re- reject things that he was speaking to them. Some of them were harder for them to hear than others. But they continued listening with open ears and as much as possible with an open hand and with a heart that was willing to be led, and he taught them. And as they were able, he teaches them more and leads them further, and there's more and more fruit in their lives, and they continue to go, and that's why they come to that hundredfold crop. It is an upward spiral. Maybe they didn't really understand the, the, the extent to which their decision to listen just a little bit their decision to believe the little bit that they understood, to receive that joyfully, to act upon it, they probably didn't understand where that was going to go. But you know what? God in his goodness keeps bringing them to a higher place, to a higher place. And there's more out there. And believe me, brothers and sisters, there is more and more to be found in this word. We don't come to an end to it in this life, let alone the next in the sense of, of Christ himself showing us as the image of the invisible God, we don't come to an end of that word. And this upward spiral, it is a, a wonderful and beautiful thing. It is one of the great privileges, surely, that we as elders have in this church, young as we are, to see the upward spiral in so many of your lives. You weren't at where you are today. You may not recognize it, but you were not where you are today five years ago. And God put you on that spiral. And it wasn't even noticed. As you're going around, it doesn't seem like you're, you're gaining any ground. But a year later, you, you look below you and you see where you were. And you keep going up and you keep going up. And of course, my exhortation and encouragement is to keep going. It doesn't come to an end. And there's no need to stop this good thing. What Calvin says is this, Hence, also let us learn to aim at progress throughout our whole life. For God grants to us the taste of his heavenly doctrine on the express condition that we feed on it abundantly from day to day till we come to be fully satiated with it. So good and right. This this word, in some sense, is a free gift, but it does come with a condition. It comes with a condition. If God gives you this good thing, you've got to use it. He's going to hold you accountable for using it like that person with the light who uses it for their own good and for the good of those around you. It comes with the express condition that we feed on it abundantly till we come to be fully satiated with it. Your response to the word of God will become a spiral one way or another. Take heed, therefore, the way you hear this word. Now, I have a number of applications to it, so many I, I could not include them all, but the first is simply to ask the question, whose family do you belong to? It's a simple question. It's a basic diagnostic tool. Jesus says those who are related to me are going to listen carefully to the word of God. They're going to receive it, and they're going to obey it to the best, yes, of their, their limited ability. But yes, they're going to obey it. Yes, they're going to show it in their lives. I'd say, you know, you may not know this. Maybe this is a preacher's secret. But you know that those who, who preach here, and as I compare notes with others among us who have done so and others in other churches, do you know we take note of, of how you receive this word? We don't claim to have some sort of uh, supernatural ability to see, and, and maybe, some of, maybe we, we fancy ourselves to notice more than we do. But we do take note. We do take note because, again, it's, almost, it's like no one even has to tell us. We understand that those who are Christ are going to receive his word and, and treasure it. They want to bring it in. They don't want to let anything fall to the ground. And again, I don't want you to change the way you, you act just because you understand this, but we're assuming that this principle is true, that this word of God is identifying you whether you believe in Christ or not. It has that effect on people. 
And I, I just ask you the question because I've already admitted that I have no infallible insight into these things, just some indications here and there. And I say, are you Christ's brother? Would he look at you? Would he point to you in the, in the crowd around him and say, these are my, my mothers and my brothers and my sisters because they are here listening to this word of God and they're doing it. Or would he say that he doesn't know who you are? Would he say that you bear no relationship to him because you trample his word underground and account it as a common and worthless thing? That's for you to decide. Second, I have to ask, what spiral are you on? Besides merely just taking a snapshot of where you are at this moment, the question is, what spiral are you on? Let's at least talk about that much. If all we've been saying is true, then right now some of you are on that good spiral of having more and more being given to you, and others are on that bad spiral, not receiving the word in a worthy manner, and having more and, and less and less of it, and it's being taken away to a greater extent from, from before your eyes. Sadly, I know some who have experienced that, that there was a moment of time in which they were under conviction by the word of God. They were under conviction by the Holy Spirit, and they, they pushed it back. Assuming that that day would still be there, the opportunity would continue, and it didn't. That Christ, in his justice, removed the word of God from them. And they just continue on in that sad, downward spiral. I would say, praise God, that if you're, you're here and you have the word of God coming to you, then you've at least not fallen off entirely of that spiral. Here's your opportunity to treat the word of God as it ought to, to treasure it and to obey it. And perhaps the Lord will give you a little more. Maybe to change the direction of that spiral. God is a good God and today is the day of salvation for those who hear his word. What spiral are you on? Thirdly, I would say take heed how you hear the world. Understand the difference in, in word there. It's, of course, we take heed in the way that we hear the word and that is the exhortation of the whole sermon but if that's true, if it's really, really important, if it is of the utmost crucial importance the way we hear this word of God, is it maybe also important the way we hear the word of the enemy, the, the word of this world as it is inspired indeed by Satan, the enemy of our souls. It's the very word of God which in, it comes in its purity, but it comes with a warning label. Be careful. Here's a word. I'm going to give it to you people. But be careful how you receive it, because it, that, that is, it's going to be a big deal one way or another. Do you think that the word of this world also should come with such a warning? Satan's not going to give it to you, by the way. I'm going to give it to you, though. Be careful how you hear that word. And yes, I am talking about the media. I'm talking about the circumstances and the attitudes and approaches by which you hear that word. All the things that I mentioned, all the things that we, we say that we put in place in order that you might hear this word of God and receive it the way that you would, the opposite should apply with regard to the word of the world. I mentioned on some other occasion how Satan, as it were, catechizes people so that then when they hear the word of God, they, there is a, a, a resistance. Sometimes I think he immunizes people by giving them a little bit in the circumstances by which it will be undermined. And the whole project is so that, yes... You're probably going to hear the word of God sometime in your life, but hopefully it's not going to reach your heart. Hopefully it's not going to make any difference in the way you think and feel and do. Brothers and sisters, we need to have that project with regard to the word of the world. We need to catechize our children. We have a catechism. We need to use it. And those things we provide defenses and bulwarks against what they hear, how deeply those things affect them because they know these things don't square up with the truth of, of orthodox theology that they've heard. We need to, in a way, immunize them, expose them in limited amounts, but in the circumstances and with the interpretation and with the explanation and the discussion necessary to undermine its importance in their hearts. Take heed how you hear the world. But hooking yourselves up or your children up nonstop to the words... In, in their vulnerability to the words which I, I believe very much carry, carry the mark of, of Satan upon them 
is highly irresponsible. And we can be sure that these things will have their effect. They will certainly have their effect. Well, take heed how you hear the world. Fourthly, I would say, let your light shine. We've been speaking uh, here in terms of the light as evidence. If we've heard the word and believe it, if we're regenerate Christians, then there will be light. We're going to use that word. It's going to be treasured and it's going to be held aloft. So it's here in this particular passage in Luke 8 being used mainly, I think, in terms of evidence, right? But Jesus uses the very same illustration for a slightly different purpose in Matthew 5. Again, keep in mind, a lot of these parables he said more than once. And a lot of his illustrations he used, like any good preacher, use them more than once. And in Matthew 5.14 he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a, a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the, the exhortation is, we cannot and should not be stealth believers. I mentioned the sad reality of some who hide their identity as believers. And there's reason for it. Because we're going to be persecuted if we publicly identify ourselves with Christ. The more we identify, the more open we are, the more subject we are to, in various ways, persecution. No, not like our brothers in Iraq, which are are dying, uh, where their identification as a Christian at all is, is a death warrant to them. And we pray for them that the Lord would uphold them and the Lord would also provide them relief. But we have a different kind of soft persecution in this land. And my my word of advice to you, to to myself, is that we cannot be self-believers. We can't do it. It doesn't ultimately work. They always find out in the end anyways. Because if the light is in us, it cannot be hidden. And I'd say beyond that, that your great distinction even now, we all want to be different, don't we? We all want to distinguish ourselves. Well, your great distinction, the greatest one that could possibly have had in this world, is precisely that you are a Christian. That is your great glory. The only thing that you're allowed to glory in is, in fact, that we know the one true and living God and that we are part of his family. And that's, by the way, of course, our eternal glory. Your identity is in Christ, and that is the greatest thing that that could be said about us. So don't hide it. Let your light shine before men. And fifthly, finally, and I would say the longest one of these, is a great question of English church history. All right, so again, switch switch on your, your minds here and think. During my travels, I've had the sad duty to explain why it is necessary to send missionaries to this, our country, to England. Why is it necessary? People want to know. It's hardly self-evident since it wasn't so long ago. I would say even, granted that the distance between myself and the 19th century and the own circumstances of my my mother and my grandmother weren't as great as with some people, but my grandmother was alive in a time in which England was more Christian than America, in which England was the great missionary powerhouse of the world, and all the rest were in, as it were, the shadows compared to this land. And they want to know what happened. How is it that the nation on earth, quite possibly, quite possibly, more so to a greater extent than any other nation in the whole history of the world, had received the gospel and had so profited from it almost universally, and that God had been given every other thing that could be given to this tiny little island nation, not even as large as one of the average-sized states in America, yet ruling the entire world. How is it that this land so suffused by the gospel has turned away so much as to become an unreached people group, because that's what we are missiologically, an unreached people group. That's why we send missionaries. How is it this country is shot through with former church buildings, either derelict or used for other purposes, like the corpse of a dead religion? How is that? How did that happen in less than 100 years? That is more than just a good question to ask theoretically. That That is the question, that is the great question that should preoccupy the British church. And indeed, the American one, as she sadly follows in those very same footsteps. It should be something that haunts us. It should be something that should constantly be be, uh, influencing everything that we do. 
And here I think that God's word provides us with the principles necessary to understand it. Again, I don't speak as a prophet. I speak as one interpreting the word of God to our situation. And I have to ask the question, if all this is about all Luke 8 and all these other parallel passages, they all have to do with helping us to understand the responses to the word of God and how God then deals with those who respond in these upward and downward spirals, the question is, how did England respond to all that amazing gospel prosperity in the 19th century? How did that How did they respond? Well, the people responded by deserting gospel-preaching churches in droves in favor, first, of progressive churches that were more in attune with their their tastes. By the way, in those days, no doubt, some men fancied themselves church growth gurus because their church was growing by this compromised half-word by the situation of accommodation with the culture. And they must have thought of themselves wonderful. Little did they know that they were the single generation halfway house out of the church entirely. And soon enough, that next generation didn't go to church at all. And how did the church respond? Because that's even sadder. How did the church respond to all that gospel blessing? By muzzling the word of God. The very instrument of her salvation, the very most precious thing, she decides that she doesn't want it. So she restricts it. She blunts it. She rounds off the sharp edges of orthodox theology. She embraces German liberalism and starts preaching the social gospel. That's how she responds. And what, brothers and sisters, do you think God then did with that? How did he respond to these people trampling underfoot his precious word? Do you think that gospel prosperity and everything that went on was going to go on forever? I say this quite literally in tears. But God, in his justice, was not going to endure that treatment of his word. And he withdrew from the land. If you knew nothing else but what we have learned today, we would know this to be the case. And he was just in so doing. Do you know what? The fact that this gospel is being heard today is also evidence of his mercy. It is down to the sheer mercy of God that he has given us another chance. And the question is, what now? What are we going to do with this second chance as as a people, as a church in this land? I say we give it free course in our hearts, and our lives. And I say that there, there should be no restraint and no, no muzzle, no rounding off, but full and free access to our hearts. And as much as we know how, we embrace this word, this precious word as we have it. And I would say particularly to the young people that you have been the recipients of this, this precious word and you've benefited from it. You've been blessed by it. Some of you have been savingly blessed by it. But all of you in, in various ways, all of you, you'll find... That as you grow up, your life will be better than others because you have been in the hearing of the word of God even in this life. And I again pray all of you, savingly so and eternally so. The question is, how are you going to respond when it comes time for you to choose for yourself a church? How are you going to discharge your duty that you know that you have to go to church? Are you going to continue the cycle of your great-grandparents And decide that the best solution is to find one that's cooler than this one. More affirming of the world that doesn't talk about sin and hell and the blood atonement as much. Because there will be those churches there. And are you going to repeat that cycle? In the halfway house out into the world. If you do, know that your children probably won't go to church at all. Know that you're only setting yourselves and them on that downward spiral. Do not deceive yourselves, for God is not deceived. Each and every move that we ever make to restrict the word of God in our minds and in our hearts and our lives, each and every move that we make one direction or another, he takes notice of it. And if we are restricting it, he receives it as ingratitude. And he makes it clear in this passage that he will respond in kind. If you hope to make things a little bit more comfortable by turning down things just a little bit, 
and giving a little bit more affirmation to the world and all the rest of it, what does God say? God says he will, in a sense, grant your request. But he's going to do so more than you imagine. And then the cycle repeats. And what I'm saying to you, and I'm earnestly pleading with you, young people, don't go down that road. God has in his mercy given us another chance. And my earnest plea is that we receive it with everything that we have. And that instead we go on that upward cycle of those who are deeply grateful for all the blessings of it and want to receive it as the treasured thing that it is. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider ourselves, even let alone our ancestors, let alone the church as a whole over this last century, Lord, you would be just never to speak again to us. With we and our fathers, we have sinned against you. And in the worst sort of way, in accounting your precious word as a common thing, a thing to be embarrassed about, a thing to be explained away, a thing to be replaced by other things. Lord, forgive us. Lord, we thank you that in your mercy you're yet speaking to us. The day of salvation is yet. And Lord, to us, to all in the hearing of my voice, Lord, there's yet an opportunity to seize upon the word. However little has made it through our ears and heads, Lord, we pray that we would believe it, receive it thankfully, and that, Lord, you would give us a little more. And that indeed, Lord, this word would be so precious to us that we do everything in our power to safeguard it and to preserve it for ourselves and for future generations. And that, Lord, you and your mercy would continue speaking to us and that we might bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, all to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.